Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the marketing minds at doconvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I think we can change that too. We have successfully upgraded the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, <laughs> is the ad doctor, Andrew Peak. We are here, episode 143, with Jackie Lipinski. When I did your intro a few weeks ago, that it's hard. Yeah, that's a lot of pacing to go through, and that's like one breath. You want to do it in one breath. It's difficult. Yeah, two, two, just start, start with three and then move up to two. That's where, I, I mean, I think three. one, you'd pass out. But yeah, I think we can say that conversation has been elevated. I mean, now there are what, like six different podcasts around the the industry, at least. Um, yeah, I think we just saw a new podcast being released this week to people. <laughs> and we've been reaching out to you, Andrew. And oh, yeah. um, I think the need the need to hear people and just talk about the situations is... Yeah, this isn't technically story time yet. We're not there because you haven't heard the bumper music. But I, I just want to give a quick hint or suggestion to, to someone who would want to be a guest on the podcast, just again, shoot me a note, email show at doyouconvert.com, reach out on social media. We've had some very strange, like normally they put both of us on it, Andrew. They're like, Hey, um, I'm a big fan of the show. And you can tell it's a templated thing, but yeah. then there's other people who are like, I'm a big fan of the show. And then, you know, we touch base with them and they're like, Oh, I haven't really heard it. Or like, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. Like, I just want to, get more famous. <laughs> no, that, like, what's be famous? That's not what this is about. This is about this is everyone strange. getting I better. I think there's plenty of people listening that they will feel like they're, they're underqualified to be on. That was the other reason I wanted to bring I'm it up. Like, yeah. You're not. Like, no, I think you should absolutely you be on here. Who people want to hear from. Yeah. And it, anyone yeah. who's in marketing, if you are a marketer, you have basically an open invitation. Again, just let us know there might not be a narrative. It might just be your, your story and what you've learned and where you've learned it from and all the rest, but. And 2020, 2021 changes. And yeah, everyone. Yeah, there's a lot of unique things happening and unique solutions. And I, yeah. we even just talked to a builder today, Kevin, who I thought had a very good solution to. Oh a, yeah. A, we should talk a, about a, that later. A, yeah. Yeah. Wide problem that I'm seeing. And we're like, Oh, we should have him talk about that because that is something I haven't heard yet. Yeah. It was a, it was a new wrinkle, but I mean, the other thing is just don't ask like, so can I be on tomorrow? Because the calendar, like with all of you guys, life is life is crazy, but we'll get you in for sure. So reach out. Yeah, all right. Do it. Officially moving on. Two story time. Two. Right here. Jackie, ladies first. Yes, yeah, so the story time. We have a, it's April Fool's Day. I was hoping oh, this no. was a joke, but it's not a joke. And we know that there are obligations that some builders have, and you have certain minimum amounts of houses you have to sell. But in this market, someone is doing an incentive program right now. It's $10,000 for any under construction home for the whole month of April. Um, and we just, I just feel like you can use that money in a better way, but at the same time, there are well, certain the, solutions you have to come up with to get sales yeah. done. So it's, it's a catch 22. So I made my first trip out to a builder 20 group and that was a topic that I left them. Well, I think it was the last thing I talked about. I was like, don't you ever start doing promotions again? And, and they all, you know, ha ha. Okay. This is the guy who says this and that's <laughs> nice, but there's real life too. And I'm like, I'm not saying don't have, I was like, everyone in your hand raise. If you have some form of incentive, there's only one of the 20 and it was still tied to getting the mortgage company that they wanted to be involved, involved. 
um, I said, look, it's not that you can't have it, but you'd never need to advertise it. Mm -hmm. Like technology has evolved and marketing has evolved to the point where if you just update the pricing, change whatever the reality is with your product mix, the new people looking will find it. And you can always communicate to the people who already have reached out to you about this, like and this builder, instead of running a promotion or talking about something publicly could have, I'm sure just gone to whatever the existing database was. Even if it's in a nearby community and said, hey, we know you've expressed interest in this other community. We have an amazing limited time offer. You don't even have to tell them what it is. You can just, I mean, who's having limited time offers of anything? So contact us now yeah. to learn who that is. You just don't have to give it away, especially not in in, in this instance where we're still in the hashtag best market ever yeah. place. It, no matter where your incentive is, everyone sees it and everyone else wants it. And then they feel like they're getting gypped if it's not being applied to them. So that's the mm. big picture problem. Yep. 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 Just say no. That's true. Just say no. Andrew, what do you Just got? Say no. Yeah, I got, I got a few. Um, so yeah, two, like, yeah, two short ones here. So data studio, uh, was talking with Julie earlier and she's like, Hey, should I just guide the, this builder through using Google analytics? to get the data or should I create a data studio report so that they always have this da da da. Mm. And so it just depends. So if it's, so the, the marketer, like you need to be able to navigate and do it on your own. But I believe the context of this was this report was leadership was wanting to see this data. So I'm like, you got to go data studio. It might take a little bit longer. You might need to have two or three pages mm -hmm. for this. And it's data that we don't really value too much because it's not actionable. Like, so, okay. So if we're looking at the demographic of the traffic coming in from Facebook, well, we can't really change that. We can't say, oh, we only want to go after 30 to 40 year olds. Now we can't change anything. So it's, it's kind of like just, nor oh, would you neat. want to, cause you nor don't want to let the AI to. do its thing. Yeah. Right. And you don't, you don't really know, even if you're like our buyer is this, and then you start selling houses, <laughs> you're like, oh, well, I guess we're, we're wrong. Like people just want a nice location, a nice house, a nice product. Um, so yeah, get comfortable with data studio. Cause this, I, it took Julie, I think like five minutes to do like when she, once she realized like, oh, this is what we're wanting to do. And a year ago, she wasn't making data studio reports. She of course has had, um, some acceleration working here, um, at Convert. but once you get over the learning curve, oh my goodness, like the amount of time you could save and just communicating data, like here's the report and just making it simpler. Yep. Versus logging into analytics with leadership watching, you're on a big TV and there's six, seven people around, whatever it may be, and they're seeing all this other data that could get them distracted. Like, hey, what about that? That seems important. What about that? Let's look over. And you're like, oh no, please, please, we don't. I'm just pulling up this data that you asked for, and that's all we're looking at. So that's the the big thing with the data studio reports. And then I, I put on my um, Instagram story, um, sending questions for the podcast, and I had a funny one. Jackie, you know who this person is. I know who it is immediately. Yeah. We know who it is. She cut says, it out my, is the first answer. The, cut it out. Has my on. unicorn status been revoked this past year? I'm like, no, but this is Kevin's thing. No, but I think the question behind the question um, is really how do you handle when you feel like you're not making either big progress marketing at the company? Like, let's say budget change, priority changes, and you're like, oh, I was really excited to do XYZ project, and now that's kind of on hold. Or maybe you personally feel like I'm not making much growth as far as my my own career. So so what what do you say to that, Jackie? What would you recommend? That I think that's a Pitch great question. Spot. I mean, 
I know. <laughs> um, one, your unicorn status has not been revoked. Um, you're still amazing. But two, I think it's just sometimes there are years of growth and sometimes there are years of uh, just, I think, grasping a better understanding of what you're doing. And, and so it's, I think it's unhealthy to have this mental element where you think you have to be running mentally the entire time. Sometimes it's a walk, run, jump. And then sometimes it's, a, I'm going to have to take a breather. Um, but as long as I think you have long-term goals and you, you know what you want to get out of the next year, even just that personal growth. Um, I think that's great. I usually like to start the year with what do I want to accomplish this year? I know one time I, I talked to my company and I was like, okay, well, like last year was great. Um, I didn't feel like I grew enough. Can I expand my budget to include events? And I'm just going to go to every event and then I'll let you I'll, I'll let you know what was worth it, what wasn't. Um, but I think for me within my department and understanding what I need to apply, um, that was kind of my, I need to do this to be mentally stimulated element. And so that would be my recommendation for anyone who's kind of struggling. And I think there's a lot of people feeling isolated. Obviously the pandemic isn't helping. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you need to connect with someone, Jackie Lipinski at doconvert.com, just <laughs> shoot me an email. I'll, I'll, I'll sign you a, a buddy system and we'll, yeah, we'll get you, you a buddy. We always, buddy. we always have people who are like, Hey, I need some, I need some friends. Uh, yeah, I will find you similar a friend. connections. Yeah. If you haven't been to the summit to, to do that in person, we can definitely still help you out. Or, and That's in the Facebook the group too. Yeah. I mean, just start yeah. looking at people and reaching out. I, I think the other things I would add on to that is that we use the analogy of waves and surfing a lot about a lot of different things. But in this particular case, you can't you can't force yourself to grow when the waves aren't aren't coming. Like when when the waters are calm, and that in this case it sounds like that now she doesn't work because the water is actually maybe it's better it's so choppy there is no wave there's just like constantly there moving water washing but, yeah. but there is no wave so yeah you're going to be really freaking frustrated if you're like this is the day i mean you sound and i mean this with all love to the person who answered who asked the, who said the the answer or asked the question but you sound like my my 13 and a half year old daughter who is like so frustrated when she can't be perfect at something in a day and that's you know it's like well you no, it's, it's, it's the, it's the work over time. And you just don't, don't fight the different conditions that are around you. The other thing is I heard, um, a podcast where someone was talking about, they were like really, really sick. And like, when I was really, really sick, all I could do was wait to get better. And that's frustrating. But if you push yourself too far too quickly, you can actually make yourself worse. So mm -hmm. again, I think we also know this other person or this person's looking at moving, They've got a lot of like young kids at, at home. Um, husband comes and goes for, for work. And, and that's like all that stress. Like you're allowed to take off in, in, in air quotes for like you, the push of your career for the next six months. It's okay. Um, yeah. I think all those things You've together. you laid the groundwork. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not falling apart. And that's saying something. And, and, and for people who always think it has to get better, it doesn't. Sometimes just like with um, companies, Andrew and I, we talked about this before about you have periods of of consolidation and rest and then boom, periods of growth and it's sprint yep. as fast as you can to keep up and then you have to consolidate, make sure everything's running well and not breaking and then boom. And that's important. It's really PS, the longer you go in your career, the more frustrating those times become because you get addicted to the to the high of growth and movement. And 
And that's where burnout hides around the corner for you if you're not careful is you can't do that all the time. I'm going to transition this into my story time too, which is about the psychological insights that I think I've I've come to realize around why content creation and, and content Ooh, marketing is so hard I, I for marketers. Okay. But, you know, I do love to write. But there are times where I have a lot to say and I can, most of the things that you've ever seen that I've written have, have been done in an hour or less. And that's not a brag. It's just that when things flow, they come out very, very quickly. And I don't push myself to write when it's not there. I have to balance that with making sure that I'm not so lazy or distracted that I never write too. But if I, if I sat down and made myself write for five hours in a day, I would be so mentally exhausted that I probably wouldn't write for the next month. But I could set a goal of I'm going to make myself write 30 minutes every day. And and that's what you got to figure out is what is the amount of work that I can put into something that I can do every day or with great consistency. It doesn't it doesn't help in a lot of cases. This isn't across the board, but in a lot of cases it doesn't help to go all into something for 12 hours and then again be so tired or exhausted or bored by the thing that you never want to look at it again. True success over time comes from that consistency of doing something every day. That's why um, Myers Barnes, who's famous for pushing everyone he talked to about read an hour a day in your chosen profession and you'll double your income in a year. But he was really clear. Everyone remembers that part. What they don't remember was the thing he always said next, which was you can't shortcut it. You can't read seven hours in one day and then go the rest of the week and not read anything. That's not how your brain is meant to work. It's not how you build momentum. Just like Andrew, if you stopped weightlifting for, you know, like I'm going to weightlift 10 hours or, and then you took yeah, the next 10 days dead. off, right? That, that wouldn't work. No. So why is content creation and, and marketing so hard for, for marketers to do, even though this is a good time to do it? I think it's because there's so much unknown in terms of the return on investment. So I don't know who still does this right now with the pandemic and everything, but if you came home and told your significant other or they asked you, what'd you do today? And you said, made a blog post. They'd be like, what? Is that your job? Like you wrote an article or you took some pictures? And so, whereas if the answer was, well, I created, you know, five different campaigns that are going to run for the next two weeks and it's going to get the company this much traffic, which will lead to this many appointments and this many sales. You, it, it's very easy to look at it and, and feel productive or to relate to those around you who are not in marketing that you were productive. There's no question as to what it is you did. Whereas content creation is something that has a big question mark at the end of it. So energy plus time equals question mark. That's where content comes from. And that's why everyone gets so drawn to the content that we know we have to have. Okay, pictures of the model, yeah. got it. That's real work. <laughs> we got to do that because obviously, you know, anything around the e-commerce part of decision making when it comes to a home, the floor plans, all that stuff, it's like, yeah, we do that. We do that consistently. Why? Because it's real work because we have to. But anything else where energy plus time equals question mark like all that other content around the edges. And, and Andrew's even been pushing me about that with some of what we do here at Do You Converse. Like, what about that content yeah. over here? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, because <laughs> there's so much opportunity for our current focus of energy plus time equals we have so much to deliver that we still can't to the marketplace that it's less interesting to me. But I, I understand where it comes from. 
And so it's that same idea of why don't you have more storytelling content? Why don't you have more emotional content? Why don't you have these other pieces around uh, the bingeable content that you're trying to create that is the shopping content? It's because you're terrified that the CFO is going to walk by and be like, hey, what'd you do today, Kevin? Uh, Planned out some content for the next month on, you know, some pictures and videos and cool stuff. It's going to be really cool stuff. Awesome. And we all know the question we're dreading to hear. And how many homes is that going to sell, Kevin? Right? So that, that's where this all comes from. It's the psychological insecurity of knowing, I, I can't promise you when the return on the investment here will be. And that's why we repeat it so much to give you an excuse to say, these experts and, and all these people all agree that we have to spend time doing this because you can't, you can't put a price tag on it, which is something we're going to talk about in, in one of the news articles here. It, it's harder to put a price tag on it or to know the definitive time frame that it's going to pay you back. It will. We just don't know when. And I think the challenge with some of those is I, we, we need to categorize this because I think with your example of calling it the, the e-commerce or shopping cart content, everyone gets that. Like That's like the standard that you need and the comp- company-wide that's accepted. It fits perfectly with the sales process. Like, why don't we have this picture? We need this picture because mm-hmm. someone's asking about it. Mm-hmm. But everything around that content, I think another challenge is if you create two of those pieces, whatever it may be, that might not be felt or seen anywhere, but it's the momentum six months, eight months, 12 months later when every person who's interacted with your site and Facebook and Instagram, wherever they may be, they've had a chance to interact with all those pieces. So like the podcast, if you do two episodes, mm-hmm. three episodes, and it's just on the site somewhere, like, eh, no one's really know about it, but you have the eight, 10, 12, 20 episodes, whatever number that makes sense for you. And now it's part of the follow-up process. Now it's part of like, Hey, mm-hmm. Design Studio is coming up. The Design Studio consultant sends you, hey, listen to this episode on the way in or like the week before. And now you have this, this momentum of all that fluffy content that yeah. did not actually drive any sales. But now it's just so big and massive. It's like, oh, how do we have this? How do we not have this before? Yeah, to um, me, it's, it's e-commerce. In between awkward phases, hard. It's the, it's the e-commerce content and then it's education and trust building content or, or emotion based content. Th- those are really the two main categories. And really the only thing that you see with consistency on our industry on the emotion storytelling, um, trust building side is testimonials. And again, there's a way to shoot testimonials like documenting a crime scene. And then there's a way to shoot <laughs> testimonials where you have an emotion, uh, connected to that story that, that draws you in and, and cements that brand, uh, as being different and unique. So, I, but I understand why it's hard and I, and it helped me. It, it, it always helps me when I can think about like, what are the forces in my own brain that's making me continue to go back to the same thing over and over again? Instead, it, it is, it is fear, which it usually is to a certain extent, but it's a very specific type of fear of, of not feeling productive or not being able to defend that, that productive work to others that I think really, really to me. I feel, anyway. like, I, feel like I could talk about this all day long, but I, and I think productivity will be extremely low when you first start. Like it's going to take a bit to actually start to get momentum to build that content. Like the first oh, week, you'll be like, of, I did nothing. Most of the like, time. What the heck? Most of the I time. Because people, it's new. I've, just because it's yeah. new. I felt like almost my first full year was just reactive marketing where it's mm-hmm. like, oh goodness, I, I, I need to get my, you know, what am I? And then all of a sudden you're like, all right, you're more comfortable. You're more confident. Here's what's needed. You, you have a full understanding of what needs to be 
discussed and talked about. And also some of that I actually shared an office with the OSC. And so I could hear what people were asking oh, her and I, I was able to understand what content needed to be created from the consistent questions that were being asked and then what she talked about. So if you're in marketing and you're actually not connecting with your online sales counselor regularly to just ask what people are asking, where their frustrations are, I think that's also a missed opportunity for content creation to solve those problems. You should be best buddies. Like, yeah. Yes, yeah. you should that. be best buddies with your OSC. For sure. I, that's one of my favorite things. There's a, a builder in the Southern part that, and, and every once in a while she'll post an Instagram story about herself going out to lunch with the OSC. And I'm like, this just makes me happy. The marketer and the OSC going out to lunch, right? Perfect. All right, moving on to the oh. news because we could talk about that all day. Okay. Uh, first up from searchengineland.com, how to tell stories using data. Written hey, by did you write this? Kevin Oak. Oh, no, Chris Wood. Chris Wood. Ah. It's <laughs> your pseudonym. <laughs> yeah, this is one of my favorite quotes that I I believe I came up with. I, I did, but I just don't want it. No one <laughs> take a picture of me and put this next to it. You know, I hate that. Unless it's in like Comic Sans and it's like... It's oh, gosh. That might be okay. <laughs> oh, gosh. I have a feeling the Instagram or the unicorn marketer that we, we talked about would be the one most likely to do this. So hopefully she just skips this episode entirely. But... <laughs> um, my favorite, one of my favorite things to tell people is that our job as marketers is to tell stories using data to give people an excuse to change their mind without appearing like, you know, they actually change their mind. It's giving them an excuse. Okay. I didn't know this before. And so I had this wrong viewpoint, but now Mr. and Mrs. Marketer, you gave me this new data point with a story about, about how it works so that I can say, well, now that you sell me that, I agree. We should give you back your content marketing budget, right? That that's the goal of what we're trying to do is is to drive change. And um, to me, it, the the best summary of the article, although of course link in the show notes, is it, it outlines five ways to get traction from your data. And this is again particularly speaking to groups I think outside of whoever it is that's collecting the data because you understand it. It's very simple, uh, straightforward to you. But number one, visualize data whenever possible for the audience. Um, it just, it, it helps with the, with the absorption of the information. Number two, structure the insights as a story. This is why I love analogies and, and why we tell stories and story time has always been a part of the podcast is because as the article says here, telling a story opens up neural pathways in the audience that gets everybody more engaged, triggering more memories and sense perceptions than charts and graphs. So back to point number one, two, visualizing your data is not just creating a Google Data Studio report with a chart. <laughs> That's that that does make it easier maybe than just raw numbers in Excel, but it's also not I think where they're saying is the best example of what you could do that. Um, choose the best action, right? You know, the verbs or actions are the most crucial part of speech in data related stories. They talk about what are you supposed to do with it? That's that like if Andrew had a, one of these bullet points named after him, this would be it, right? Like what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah, yeah. What button can I click? <laughs> but but too often when we tell stories with data, we're trying to sound cool or impressive. And I think that's the other thing is uh, if you haven't yet, you will learn that the people who matter most are the least likely to find something cool or impressive. <laughs> like, you know, the, the the CFOs and the CEOs and the COs of the world, they're always thinking, and so what? Like, tell me what is the so what? Like. That thing alone that you think is cool is not cool enough. You have to tell me what what's the so what. 
Yeah. And they mentioned just, you need to identify a problem or identify an opportunity in that data when presenting it, or else it's just like a pretty picture that no one cares about. Yeah. And it's even worse than that. Again, I've had the opportunity um, to interact with three billionaires in my life and the commonality between all three of them, even if they were just conversation, one was a, was a conversation that lasted about an hour. One was about 15 minutes and one was like three minutes but they all were equally intense because it's not just that they're smart and can think quickly. It's that time matters so much. And so if I'm talking to you, I'm not talking to someone else. And so tell me why this matters. Like not kind of sort of interesting. Tell me why it matters right now. Um, number four, attach the data to something relatable. So finding commonalities, again, this is why I love analogies, whether they land or not. Um, maybe that's the next sound effect is, is like point scales on analogies. Cause Mike and Jen love to play the rate that rate Kevin's analogy game. <laughs> and then, uh, and then humanize the data. Remember who you're talking about and also make sure to remind your audience. So make it imminently relatable to them. So if you're, if you're talking about a marketing metric that salespeople don't necessarily care about that, but how does that marketing metric relate to sales and PS everything kind of relates to everything else. That's, that's, um, what is that? Einstein or <laughs> Works for me. I, I don't know who that was, but everything, everything is, is connected in this, in this crazy world of ours. So there's a way to do that always. And the dominoes will eventually fall to something that's relatable when you start knocking them over. Uh, and again, the one thing I'd add on here is the best part of making something relatable and action oriented is often to put a price tag on either how much you will lose if you don't do this or the opportunity lost or the opportunity to gain if we do this. Put it in dollars and, and with a time frame whenever possible. If you really want to get attention from the from the executives that matter, you want to add the return on investment or the opportunity in front of you and the time frame that, that you believe uh, it will take to get that result. You're not always going to be right, but you'll never even get a chance to to prove yourself right or wrong if you don't do that most of the time. Anything else there? Moving on to the next one. Ooh. We're good. Okay. Yeah. We're good. <laughs> Housingwire.com, the ugly side of housing, low inventory. Dated March 31st, fewer oh, deals wow. are going into contract than ever before. The NAR's pending home sale index managed to fall below 100 in the Northeast and West in February, while the South and Midwest also experienced declines, but managed to stay above the 100 mark. 10.6% uh, drop in the number of homes in contract from the prior month. So yeah, this is like we talked about before, Jackie, right? Just, yeah, last it's week. not just builders who are choosing not to sell homes. People are choosing not to sell homes. Mm -hmm. And you, were you the one, Jackie, who said that, 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 um, when we are today, we're going to have on a gentleman from Zillow, Brett, who's amazing. And in that interview, we we talked about the fact that there was just a skit about this, right? Like the boomers have two things. Oh, that boomers have wants. it all. They got yeah. the vaccines first. They have the multiple homes. They, you know, they're retired. They get to live it up. I think there's a part where they're like the only people on cruise ships because they're like, I'm free. You're not. So, um, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think they boomers, just, they just boomers got the vax. It looks like the name of yeah, the, um, yeah. And they're just able it's, it's pretty good. I'll, I'll link to it, that. but yeah, they just have the opportunity to, um, stay within their homes. If their mortgage paid is paid off, why move to now you can't afford the next step. So. Yeah. I think that's, that's the interesting thing that I heard, um, a lot of conversation about 
as I was traveling home and, and reading articles and listening to different different um, podcasts, was that boomers, uh, well, sec second home ownership has has never been higher either. Fact check me on that one. Tweet me, email if I'm wrong. But that's what people were saying. And that makes sense then as to why we have this glut. Now, part of the reason is because people are purchasing a home for construction, but they're not selling their existing home first because they don't want to move twice. They don't maybe don't have to move twice because of low interest rates. They just, they want that certainty of, of knowing what's going on. And then the other part of it is these boomers who have maybe a home up north and a home down south or east and west or by the coast, whatever, but they're not, they're not selling that house yet. Um, so there's, there's lots of different factors here. And the other thing too, which you hear some conversation about is how much of this is also being eaten up in terms of any homes that are available. The competition isn't just someone else who wants that home, it's investors. You know, Because interest rates are low and money is cheap, the amount of money that wants to invest in real estate, because they understand that rates will go up and then the value of what they have will go up is also a big part of this. And another reason why we're unlikely to see any tremendously sharp change in the marketplace anytime soon, because even though there are a lot of people in forbearance or who are behind on their payments, someone's standing there ready to buy that home. And so they'll likely yeah. not have to declare bankruptcy like they did in 07. I, I thought I saw stats somewhere like that uh, forbearance rate is at like the lowest percent it's ever been. Things like underneath 5% or something like it's, Extremely low. Yeah, forbearance shares dropped below 5% for the first time in a year. So that's good. And interesting what short-term rentals, so Airbnb-style investors have done. Yeah, I know like probably like where you're at yeah, in Seattle, you've seen it like crazy where I'm at towards the beaches. A lot of people are trying to get that because like well, the nightly rate for just a normal house that's 10 minutes from the beach is actually yes, pretty talk good. Yes, it up. I bought, I it's bought crazy. A, um, some Airbnb stock at, talk it up. at 170. <laughs> so just... Like pump, it, pump it, that, pump keep that it going. baby. And it's, yeah. and it's random people. It's, I, there's a family we know they own six apartment, um, older apartment buildings. I think it's just like under over 400 units total, but they did not want to get more apartments because that's kind of a pain for them, but they have the staff to manage short-term rentals because they already are paying these people. And so they've yeah. been buying those. And yeah, and it was a few weeks ago, we were talking about just Airbnb shifting all their marketing dollars from anything self-promoting to really they're trying to target people to be, you know, hey, boomers, you have that second home not being used for three months, rent it out. Like we know you have yeah. these homes and we know they are vacant. And so let us manage it for you. Long-term investments for those people. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is the hard part. So Be interesting if there's, yeah. there's more, I know there's some, I'm going on a tangent here. There's a tiny home community that is only short-term rentals that someone built towards Orlando. Super weird, but they're, but they're small. But we're seeing like the opportunities the, there. Yeah, yeah, the, the opportunities there. We have like the uh, the rental communities being built, or I forgot the the correct term for that. Yeah, single family interesting if there's yeah single family rent if there's built for short-term rental single family, which would not be typical because that's kind of well, weird. About two um, years ago, Airbnb announced that they plan to build those themselves. There we go. Hmm. I haven't heard anything about that since then, but, yeah. but they were planning to build their own communities because why it's kind of like the franchisee versus corporate model. Like why not have mm -hmm. some corporate stores? Obviously they don't want the majority of them to be corporate because that keeps their overhead and costs yeah. low at Airbnb. But yeah, they, they were not opposed to creating some of their own, their own properties yeah. as well. Be interesting. Might only see that in like, you know, higher tourism areas. So mm -hmm. I'm biased on, thinking that that'd be bigger than it is being down here in Florida. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
All right, moving on to nhbnow.com. Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan proposes more than $200 billion for housing and commercial buildings. Now, as apolitically as possible here, let's just talk about the pros and the cons of what's in here. And I'm going to call at least one of the pros bogus, <laughs> to use okay. a word from, from Bill it. and Ted. Love it. In the late 80s, early 90s. The first is that you know he he wants to build and rehabilitate more than half a million homes for low and middle income home buyers. Sounds good, as everyone knows. You know, I'm I'm definitely all about helping um, underprivileged people whenever possible. So mm-hmm. that's a plus. Now, are those people going to use the same materials and the same labor pool that we're already in dire shortage of? Yeah, is that likely to? I mean, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it, it was hilarious when the San Francisco was trying to build affordable housing units and weren't they spending like close to like 700 or a million dollars, uh, 700 grand or a million for each affordable housing unit being constructed because of all the codes and everything going on. So, uh, but it's a good goal, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, the next one, eliminate state and local exclusionary zoning laws. This one is there, there ain't no way this is, this is not happening there. It's just, and, and here's why. So they're talking about trying to use tax incentives and grant money to encourage municipalities to change their zoning laws. We're going to pull in the other Jackie on the DYC team who's not uh, even on the oh, episode yeah. and tell her story about this. And this is why I just think this is completely not going to happen. So Jackie Askews lives in Pittsburgh. There's a borough township called Upper St. Clair. And she was planning to build a house on some land that had been in the family. And... One, she was um, very deep in the process. It's not yeah, like it was just well, an she's, idea. Like, yeah, she's talking about it on the podcast. She's designing like, the home, getting surveys done, you know, all, all that stuff. Yeah. And just got smacked in the face by by the township a couple different ways. One, they they said, Well, you, you know, your estimated taxes on this relatively modest sized home that they were planning to build is gonna be thirty thousand dollars a year. So I don't Ooh. care what you do with the zoning laws of what you can or can't build, if that's if that's the exclusionary part is the amount you're being taxed, that is not being changed. And then the other two things were them saying, yeah, we don't, we don't want to let you have a driveway that connects to the road. And we also have reached our max capacity in terms of uh, tapping into the utilities in this area. So you're going to have to wait until next year or something. (laughs) That's like the worst one. Like what? And so I'm trying to think of this very wealthy, very high end area of town what tax incentive is going to change those scenarios for them? Like they don't, they're, again, it's a little bit like yeah. the joke of like yeah. rich people don't, they ironically worry about taxes a lot, but at the end of the day, they just pay them and it's no big deal because they're rich. Right. So <laughs> while we now no one wants to pay more taxes than they need to, at the end of the day, if you have the money to pay it, it's, it's not that, that big of a deal. So this is not going to be a super big incentive for those parts of town that everyone wants to live in. So where we where we want the affordable housing to to go is the place where those things already don't exist. So I don't know. I, I just don't understand that part of the. And feel free to explain it to me on social media. But I just don't know how those places that don't already have the ability to be affordable change their mind because of some some tax incentives, because the developers. Yeah. aren't the one aren't the problem it's the it's the municipality developers want to sell anything they can yeah they if they can lower the lot size like sure like we'll go down to something but 
yeah. I, I guess the only thing I, I, I think could work is if those were donations to the school systems to offset potentially lower tax rate for more affordable housing. You know, you're getting people who are probably younger or have children in the home who are going to, maybe that's it. I don't know. I don't know. And I, then the I, negative here, talking about the PRO Act, P-R-O, that would expand employers' liability for the labor practices of subcontractors, basically the, the gig worker clause, right? So everyone who works for Uber, even though the whole mm -hmm. point of working for Uber is that you're in control of your own hours and you can work or not work when you want, now you have to be an employee. So Jackie, your note here is effectively guts the contracting business model if that were to happen. I don't Yeah. I, I don't yeah, know we'll that see it how ever this does, plays out. Yeah. NHB yeah. and and um NAR are two of the biggest lobbying groups in the world. Um, I think the teachers union is the only one close. And so I have a I even if it does go into into I think there'll be a carve out for for construction. I just Yeah. Or else I feel like it, the way they operate would, would seems to fit like the yeah contractor uh, unless someone in the Biden administration no really wants uh, manufactured housing to be the only way that housing is done. <laughs> maybe they maybe some of the administration owns a bunch of those plants and so they want that law to be enacted. But that's what everything would have to be built in a factory at that point. This this makes me need to step backwards like forty steps to higher economic education on like affordable housing which then to truly understand that there's so many other core things you need to understand because i like where i'm at um pinellas county we're towards the beach da, da, da. that's a huge topic and then but we're the densest county in florida and the complaints are like why is this developer doing this we need affordable housing and it's like this is the hottest area of town like why would there be quote affordable housing whatever that means because i don't know if anyone is on the same page with what that actually means why would that be there? So I don't know this, I think to understand this truly, then there's, you have to, most yeah, people, I guess well, what I'm getting I, at is I like, guarantee you if I Google really Upper St. Clair yeah. affordable housing, there's nah. going to be all types of talk from the township about how they want more affordable housing in, in their area. And yet <laughs> nothing you're doing allows for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right. Next one that we're going to mention, but I'm not really going to talk about because it, it, it just drives me nuts is a, is a USA Today article <laughs> it's pretty. that has some really cool sort of. infographics, but four charts about where the money's going to go for this two, $2 trillion. And I don't want to talk about it really because of how we don't understand what these numbers even mean. So as an example, this is from thoughtco.com, <laughs> you know, 1 million pennies stacked on top of each other with it, which a million is a big number, right? I think it's a pretty yeah, big number. Big it doesn't number. feel big anymore, but a million pennies stacked on top of each other would be a mile high, just about. So that's okay. a lot. It's a lot of pennies. But a billion pennies stacked on top of each other would go 870 miles high. Cool. And a trillion pennies stacked on top of each other would go from the Earth to the moon, back to the Earth, back to the moon. So like, when we that's look at these charts and it says, okay, there's going to be 115 billion to modernize bridges, highways, roads, main streets that are in the most critical need of repair. I mean, is that enough? I don't know. I, how many? I, I don't know. I can't. There's ten thousand bridges that are going to be fixed. I'm like, I, didn't yeah. know bridges. I think looking at the this West, from a market, the West Seattle interest, Bridge needs some of that money. West, if anyone yes, from Zillow is listening, right? Listening. But it, I, if I don't feel linked to this one or not, but if you search for yeah. it, it's what's the name of it? This is to me like twenty percent done. Like I saw this, I'm like, oh, this would be interesting. This will help give better context to the NAHB article. And then you look at it, you're like, you could hover over this thing. I'm like, this is all. 
almost a cool content mm-hmm. piece as far as educating people about this. Yeah. And then it's like, it's wait, almost it, how to tell stories with it, data. Yes. <laughs> like, is it broken? Like some stuff looks sideways. Well, my favorite like thing is there's four charts, right? And one like, of the charts there's no is charts. just a single block. It just, it's just, it just like, says 400 billion for caregivers, for the elderly and disabled. And that's the entire block. So I think even like someone told them they had to have four charts, but there's only three charts here. Yeah. That one doesn't count. It's, uh, so if you see this, just this is a, an example. Like you learn by seeing what not to do and then seeing what to do. So this can help you. Like I'm building content. Might be don't don't do it this way. Yeah, right. Just take yeah. the extra 15 minutes and, and figure out a better way to do it. Okay, uh, we're gonna shift shift things up a little bit, and we're gonna ask this week's question of the week before the break, and then we'll just um, we'll we'll sign off after our time with Ooh. Brett, uh, where we're gonna dive into all the details of Zillow's new construction consumer housing trends report for 2020, which was surveyed right as the pandemic was hitting. So that that's going to be a great time for everyone listening. This that's week's question of the week though is, what is your forecast for how the housing market will be by the first quarter of next year? Right? And we'll do it in a survey with comments, of course, but you think it's going to be the same? It's going to be even more dire in terms of demand is going to be at even higher. Is it going to be softer? Is it going to be uh, a straight up down market. What do you guys think next year holds? And I'm not going to tell you what I think yet. Well, when we, when we read your answers to the question of the week yes. on the next podcast, we'll all pontificate about what our answers are, but I want to hear what, what you all have to say first. All right. Pontificate. Take a quick break and we come back. Brett Steele from Zillow New Construction Group. back sitting down today with the man behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz of the new construction group at Zillow, Brett Steele. Brett, thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I feel like everyone there should be excited to sit down with us, but it's like drawing short straws. Are you like, you like, or do you take turns? <laughs> you do, do you bubble gum that old game where you like all stand <laughs> around in a circle and hit each other's hands to figure out who, did you ever do bubble gum, Andrew? I don't think so. I'm going to look it up though. And oh I'll man, bubblegum, bubblegum on of... a stick. How many pieces do you wish? That doesn't mean anything to anyone else? No, but oh, I wow. was years old and all of a sudden, Jeez. <laughs> well, th- gum, thanks for, gum. thanks for sitting down with us. And, and before we get to the Newcon report, which is obviously uh, the main reason why you're here, I just, I want people to get to know like everyone at Zillow, is there true or false? Is there a test that like you have to prove you're one of the like top 10% smartest people in the world to work there? Uh, absolutely true. Um, it's <laughs> harder to get, it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I bribed somebody. I don't know how I'm here. <laughs> oh, uh, we'll get to that. I'm pretty sure you, <laughs> you, you have an in with, with Jake. Um, but um, where were you at before Zillow? How did you get, how did you get there? Yeah. So I was with a company called Columbia Threadneedle Investments. So it's the asset management arm of Ameriprise Financial. So it's the, the generic financial job. I was wholesaling mutual funds to private banks. So basically the ultra high net worth side of the Bank of America's, the Deutsche Bank's, the Wells Fargo Bank's, et cetera. And I was doing that for about seven or eight years oh, wow. until I just realized that I'm not passionate about this. And it's it's a job for people who 
are ready to settle into that life forever. And that was kind of the inflection point. I was either going to go for my CFA and say, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life or say, I'm not really 100% committed to this. I want to work in an industry that I'm passionate about. And that's where through, uh, through a lot of different, uh, different searches, I kept landing up on, on real estate and I was lucky enough to get a, uh, an interview with Zillow. Okay. I'm just going to stick with you a little bit longer at Columbia Threadneedle because I'm curious, like, what are the objections or the things that you're, is it, it seems like it would all be pure math, but obviously there's human beings involved. So when you like, mm, yeah. what was the hardest part about getting someone to, to buy the big block of funds that you were trying to, to sell? Yeah. So I'd say the hardest thing was we were selling a basic commodity, right? So it's a lot yeah. like the mortgages industry. You're, you're buying something that somebody else can go get anywhere else. Yeah. So relationships matter. Relationships mm. matter a lot. Um, and it's not just the schmoozing. It's the ability to be real with your clients and come go to brass tacks with them very quickly. If they say, here's what we need. And I'm like, listen, we don't have something in that space. We do, but I wouldn't recommend it to you. So go to BlackRock, go to you know a different fund who we know is better. We were selling, I'd say Columbia has anywhere between 150 to 200, 200 offerings of like what you could invest in. We only pitched actively maybe 12 to 15. Um, <laughs> wow. So it's trying to boil down the best of the best versus you know anything else that's out there. And so you sold a lot of GameStop, right? <laughs> yeah, the hedgies. You're. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. You tell somebody that you're in finance, and when things like that hit the news, the number of text messages, the number of phone calls yeah. I'm getting is now a good time. Like I have. First of all, I haven't done this for five years. I'm completely out of the industry. <laughs> Second of all, I'm no longer licensed, so I can't tell you yes or no, regardless. Third of all, I I have no idea. I never did individual stocks. I'm not in the Reddit threads, so it just <laughs> it's, it's just funny. Reading those is like, this is internet culture. Like, I don't know, too. It's the most concentrated internet culture, like the memes. And just like, if you read it, you're like, what is happening? Oh, yeah. Why are they whole talking in this language, way? Whole it's, yeah. It is hilarious to me. <laughs> Ice cream cones and rocket ships. It makes perfect sense yeah, to rocket me. Rocket ships okay. and apes. And <laughs> <laughs> what is going so, on? People so you've like, been with Zillow crazy. for how many years now? For I uh, just had my four-year anniversary. Holy cow. Awesome. Yeah. And it's, it's things have changed and... Maybe what's changed more than anything is the market conditions. And so that's why the 2020 new construction report is of such interest. I'm sure it's yeah. already been downloaded by everyone listening, but there's obviously a link to the show notes to get your your copy. Brett, we'll start again. We're, we're easing you in here. The hard questions come at the end about your <laughs> your secret job at Disney. <laughs> what, what would you say are, your, are, are the top takeaways from your perspective of this this year's report? Because 2020 was quite an interesting year. Yeah. And the the key thing to note here is the 2020 survey, we opened it up to Nukon buyers and we started asking the questions from April to May of last year. Hmm. So if we're wow. remembering our timeline, and I know that feels like three years ago at this point, that's the very beginning of the pandemic. That is before some states even started enacting their lockdowns and their shutdowns. So the nice thing about the report this year is we were able to frame the questions the right way so we could ask the exact same questions year over year. And this is the first time we're actually able to see trends. Mm -hmm. So I'll talk about, you know, it was 50% last year, it's 60% this year. That's not something we were able to do in the past. Um, so it's 
it's really fun to see like where our buyers' expectations are really heading. But to answer your question, like the the biggest change for me, first of all, the millennial group is getting bigger and bigger every day. Uh, yes, Kevin, you are technically a millennial. That's right. I sneak in there every time. But I was raised by <laughs> seniority. I, I hung out with boomers all the time, so I end up in this weird. I'm I'm mostly still Gen X. Love it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're 70 million strong right now, and they are the easily the largest cohort of new construction buyers at 39. percent The main takeaway there is if you are not currently selling to the millennial group, you will be within 10 years. So knowing what their needs are, knowing what their expectations are, this is the group that, I mean, they are surrounded by the Amazons, the Ubers, the Netflix, their expectations are just a little bit different in this world. And then the, the biggest change that I also saw was the percent of buyers who really want an agent to take over and drive the communication with people. So <laughs> 51% of, uh, of buyers who are working with an agent want their agent to handle all of the communication with the builder. Wow. And that was, that's up 17 basis points from the previous year. So huge jump there. 90% want their agent to handle some or all of the communication. So if you are putting up walls against an agent as a builder partner, don't fight the tide. That sounds timely. I just got back from a Builder 20 group and they asked me, it gave me all these lists of topics to talk about. And as I was walking in, they were kind of sort of screaming at each other about, no, we shouldn't pay them a dime. They're not worth it. We don't give them anything. I was like, okay, we're going to start with this right here. Like you, you might not want to go all the way to zero. We can talk about what's fair. And, and I think you should be thinking about what's fair in terms of the lens of the current market and what the next market is likely to be because we should just stop the yo-yoing of we hate realtors. We love realtors. We hate them. Mm -hmm. Just figure out what's fair and compensate them that way. But that's interesting. I also wonder, um, like my sister is not a millennial. She's, she's eight years older than me, but she was afraid to pump her own gas in high school. I'll, I'll never forget that. And she, she would bring me along and she'd be like, Make Kevin, do it. go out and pump the gas. I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know what's happening here. Um, I'm wondering if it's because the that buyer cohort just doesn't like direct communication, especially with strong, you know, you, you don't want to look silly. Up, did you grow up in New Jersey by any chance? <laughs> no, don't they pump your gas for you in Jersey? It, it was, a, I don't know if it's still the law, but it definitely was the law when I was growing up. So everyone I knew from New Jersey, I grew up in Connecticut. Everyone I knew from New Jersey, like we'd go on a road trip and they'd be like, where's the guy? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah. go pump gas. Uh, <laughs> be interesting um, if they, if what they're seeking for is really an advocate for the buying experience and they believe they'll get that through a realtor versus depending on like, I can't trust the builder. What do you mean? Like they're for themselves. They're, I need someone for me. And maybe that's, that's leading that increase in demand for like, oh, I want someone that's on my side and can just, I could text them and be done with it. And they'll just deal with all everything that's going on site with my home. Yeah, I mean, you, they want an advocate for themselves, right? Um, and one of the other key stats coming out of this that was one of the highest ones across the board was 80% of buyers find some part of the new construction home buying process challenging. And when it's that high, you want someone in your corner to kind of help you navigate those treacherous waters because otherwise, you know, you end up with that buyer's remorse of did I do everything the right way? No one was there to, to help me. So I totally understand it. And we don't know the answer to this question. Right. 
so this, you don't have to answer. I don't want you to, to, to get in trouble with anybody, but I, I don't know if it's an advocate or just desire for simplicity. Like if you could do it all a hundred percent in an e-commerce push a button world, would they still want an agent? I'm not, I'm not certain that that's true yeah. because I think that what they really want knowing a few millennial and Gen Z folks that just want life to be easy. Like, and, and that's, that's kind of the promise that the, that the realtor makes is, Hey, I got this for you. Or at least the good ones do. Right. The They're realtor be, could be like the human, like, um, the human that is helping them make the choices versus like, Oh, yeah. I'm building, like you're building a car with whatever brand out there on the site. And it's, you just next, 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 you chose all the options. When you build a home, you're like, well, I don't know what pink color I should do. I don't know what, how tall the baseboard should be. Should I do four, six inches, whatever, maybe, maybe they're thinking the realtor could assist with what's the best investment as far as those little choices that don't seem to make a, a difference, but maybe they, they feel like they do when they're actually down to making the choice. Yeah. I mean, they want, they want friction. They, they want frictionless transactions. Um, and however they're going to do it, that's what they're going to navigate towards. If it's an agent that's able to provide, provide that for them, the agent will become even more important in the transaction. If the technology catches up and they're able to do it without an agent, then there's a certain cohort of them that will navigate that way. Yeah, I was just going to say it's the Tesla model, right? Where it's just, you've made it easy, bring it to me and and I'm I'm checking out. And I think that's just what people, it's gravitating towards in the future. And I can absolutely see a builder focusing their energy to create these simple processes and absolutely winning um, year over year versus builders who make it difficult. Yeah, I just think, isn't the answer here though, more online salespeople, more responsiveness from the builder too? Like I think... And this is not an anti-realtor rant, Mr. Carpenter. Don't don't send me a text message about this. But it is just that, you know, right now, uh, we were talking this morning, like shopping an online salesperson doesn't seem fair because they're getting 500 to 1,000 leads a piece. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, their responsiveness rate is probably slower. Like someone today got a ding on a score because it was a 24-hour response, but they had 600 leads, all of which want personal contact information. And so... We saw this before in one of our own studies, Brett, was that the kind of the the most responsive group to a buyer is the real estate community, the general, the used home community. Agents are the ones who are like, you call me. Generally speaking, they do a better job than builders at responsiveness. We can talk about the rest of the process and the value created there, but there's no doubt that if I if I was shopping for a home and I tried to get in touch with the online team and they weren't available or they just kept submitting a form with an auto response, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to call that guy on the shopping cart or gal on the shopping cart and see if they can help me. <laughs> that face yeah. looks friendly. Yeah. It'd be interesting if in the f- five years from now, three years from now, whatever years it is, the 24-7 OSC support, say for a builder. Or, or maybe even say 6 a.m. to 11 p.m., whatever it may be, where it's on-demand human support without having to wait on anything. So that the average team size would be, say, a builder who has three OSCs now, they might have six or seven um, yeah. just hanging out. But less sales agents, so you, your overhead might not be um, increasing, but you have less um, sales agents actually selling the homes and yeah, more no at the front end. Yeah. I mean, but at the end of the day, buyers want more confidence. This is the biggest investment they'll ever make. They want more confidence in that. However, we can give that to them as an industry just makes it that much better. You know, one of the the key things that came out of the buyer mindset from this is last year it took three months to buy a, uh, to make a decision on a new construction home. This year it was two months. 
Yeah. And 23% so, found it in less than less than a month. Yeah. And again, that's like the, at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So, I bet it's even shorter now. Like, yeah. Quite a bit. And when buyers feel more confident, they make decisions quicker. So whether you're an agent, whether you're a builder, whoever it is, if you can give, if you can invest in that buyer's feeling of confidence that they're making the right decision and they have the education they need to do their research, then it's a win for everybody. This is not something we can gloss over too. Like one to two months is vastly different. Uh, you, I think it said last year, 16% uh, in the 2019 Newcon report decided to make a purchase within four weeks or less. But this has pretty big implications to how you're marketing and the importance of it. One example would be that paid search is an example, new homes, rent in Washington, right, Jackie? If historically we've said that's not a one and done search, you've got lots of opportunities over you know three to six months or longer where you don't have to pay the premium to be in first place. And in, and in current market conditions, you don't need to pay to be in premium in first place because you have nothing left to sell most likely. But in a normal market, if buyers continue to move this quickly, each one of those searches matters more because the 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 lag in time from when they begin that process to when they make a decision is is much faster. So there, I don't know, Andrew or Jackie, if there's anything else that strikes you about adjustments that are important to make and how we're communicating with buyers or marketing. But that was the first one that hit me. It was like, wow. Yeah, on on that one, it, and it doesn't relate to um, directly to Zillow, but just like the you know advertising could Google and organic and. All that could definitely have a stronger influence if people are like, hey, I need to act now or they're more willing to act, act quickly. I'm trying to see what what was that data like in 2018 and 20, just to curiosity. Like, well, historically from, from NHB and NAR, it's been significantly longer. Again, I remember like being average like was five. five, six months to, to two years at times. So there's no doubt that it's been longer. It also, yeah, you know, I'll give, I'll give you a lot of credit here in terms of Zillow, Brett, is that it also in a normal market condition would tell you that syndication sites become much more important because, um, and I don't have hard stats here to back this up, but someone trying to educate themselves well on a market, why would you not go to that as a place to start, right? You've got all the homes there. You've got the communities. There's as much information in one place to learn from. Mm -hmm. Um, But then as you learn, then that might impact your next search behavior or how you react to a social ad or other advertising as well. But if that time frame goes closer, then you're more likely to go from uh, educating yourself on the market to becoming a lead on that platform and might skip some of those other... other. I mean, we, all, we also still know that even though the time frame is shorter, that the number of touch points in the buyer journey and the number of apps and places they go has never <laughs> been more complex either. So yeah, I'm trying to oversimplify it, but their obsessive behavior as far as like how often will they open Zillow and that window is like, I don't know, 30, 40 times per day. Oh, I'm yeah. sure it's absurd. Like, How do we not talk about this Zillow. yet? You do this, Zillow. What like, was everyone's reaction to the SNL skit? And I don't know, again, if what oh. you can or cannot say, but um, did you guys have advanced warning? If so, how did that work? Like, was there watch parties set up to everyone? Like, <laughs> so From my standpoint, I did not know that it was happening. And all of a sudden... I, my phone just blew up. Uh, just everyone who ever knew that I was working at Zillow started sending me that. that Did you clip. see this yet? Like, yes. Yeah. And <laughs> I I watched it uh, not in real time, but right after it was kind of posted online. And I, I was dying. I like immediately showed my wife and she was like, that is, you are so spot on with that. 
And I was like, I don't know how much involvement we had. We clearly got the okay from somebody to be able to do it, but uh, it was a very nice surprise. And it rang true for a lot of people. That Did you see a significant so. increase in traffic right after that skit? I actually haven't dug into oh. it. Um, but I would imagine that we, <laughs> that we did. Well, I, what I, I had someone reach out to me and it, I, one, I'm very impressed with this individual because they're a builder partner um, who's not in marketing. Um, but they said, hey, I did a I did a Google Trends search and Zillow has been dropping off since this certain point in time. And, and I'm not sure. What, what do you make of that? Like, do people not think Zillow is as important? I go, yeah. No, just check out the time frame when that dropped. And by this point, everyone in the world has installed the app. So you don't need to Google Zillow. You just you go to the app that's already on your on your device, right? It was just it's really interesting how uh you know getting into the the greater consciousness, I'm sure did drive installs of of, of the app on more devices. Page yeah. page 16, um uh, buy, buyers on what they considered highly important when buying new construction. Yeah. Um, and I'm biased on this one because I'm like, this sounds like me. And the first one was <laughs> neighborhood felt safe, which is so vague. Like, what does that even mean? But it's 88%. Yeah. That's above all these other things yet. And I'm thinking about builders marketing, what's on their site, what's in the copy, what's in the pictures. And I feel like this one is completely left out. Yeah. From no, if we, if we ask like, the builders, you can't, uh, I mean, it's weird. How do you say this? But well, no, if not, this was up to builders, it, you would just cross out the word neighborhood and say model home. Cause when you go to the community page, there's almost no information home. about the community. It's, it's here's pictures of our model. So if the right. model feels safe, then as a builder, you would think you, you hit it. But yeah, I mean, we're just not even talking yeah, about, we the forget about the community and it's this. So this is, I built new construction in 2018, 2019. And I traded location for, I'm like 10 minutes from where I want to be. Um, the school district is not by preferred. So that went way down there. I'm like, this sounds like me. But the builder, a big public builder, we're, we are gated, which I, I was like, this is nice. And in our area, we don't have much new construction communities. So having a gated community is like a little bit rare. So right. when we're talking to people, we're like, oh, that's over here. It's, it's gated off of like this road and this road. Like, oh, it's, it's gated. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, like your house is like, the Zestimate's like probably twice as mine, but they're still like, it's gated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's nice. I'm like, okay. And, but yeah, the, yeah. The, the safe thing is definitely like that that's very under understated. Like I feel yeah, like- Yeah, and it's, it, it didn't ask, like it has walls surrounding it, right? It didn't ask anything, <laughs> anything specific. It's, yeah. it's very internalized of whether or not you feel safe. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So and it could be yeah, a lot of things. It could be a ton of things, right? Yeah. Uh, for it to be 88%, yeah, that definitely stuck out. 65% said walkable neighborhood, 60% yep. preferred neighborhood. So kind of location. So it was, is neighborhood a, a synonym here for like village, township, city? Or I think that, it's community. I, well, like the community. But what does that mean? Building. Like, okay, yeah, okay. So that, that's, that's, that's what I'm At trying to get we, to. Like, if it's Happy Acres, are we talking about Happy, happy Acres felt safe in a walkable Happy Acres? That's where I'm like, that seems um, like it's also encompassing not just the live, community itself, but also the immediate surrounding area. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think it's, however, the respondents took it. Mm, right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. is, it, is it your subdivision or is it the community that you're in? Right. And I think that, again, we don't talk about that. Like, right. oh, we have yeah. a Google map that automatically populates coffee places nearby. So we talked yeah. about the community. Uh, no, you didn't. That's not. <laughs> you didn't. But I think that that one could be for me. The neighborhood felt safe. Just thinking about a marketing standpoint, 
there's lights, there's sidewalks. Like for us, I'm just adding up all the things that mm-hmm. a new construction community could have versus I'm looking out my window and those are homes that are 50, 60 years old. They don't have this. They don't have that. They don't have that. So at ni- nine o'clock at night, the kids are out in the street over there, not safe in our neighborhood safe. And we have a smaller lot size, which could make it feel for some like they don't like that. But for us, it's like, oh, like we're all kind of here together. If something happens, we're, we're close with our neighbors proximity, even though that, that, that yeah, sounds like I personal. Mean, it, I mean, if you're interested in digging into that suburban nation, uh, it's on, it's like 10th edition or whatever. Suburban um, nation. Suburban nation is a great book about kind of talking about how design can help with that. So if builders are interested in like how to design something that feels safer, uh, especially for pedestrians, then uh, that's a good read. Cool. Thanks. That's, that's part of why front porches are important. Whether people sit on them or not, doesn't matter. It's in the street. It's mm -hmm. it's eyes on the street. Exactly. We were building in a community in Washington and we actually had to redo all of our plans because the city specifically wanted more neighborhood feel to the homes moving forward. And so we had to redesign everything and the houses actually went faster. And I think, Andrew, what you're saying regarding um, that, that feel before I purchased my house in Washington, I probably looked at 50 houses in person. And as soon as I saw my house, it obviously it's not new construction, but because it, I think felt safe, I put in a bid, you know, immediately. And so I think that just the, the vibe you feel from new construction and all of your neighbors are at the same level as you, I think is mentally a decision maker for that. Have to be comfortable. The other really interesting thing on this list is that my preferred school district is at 42%, which I don't know if that is because of the great reshuffling to steal from Mr. Barton is had already begun. Or if a lot of these millennials and Gen Z's that are purchasing right now, their children are animals, their cats, their dogs, some Jesse Suggs in our Mm. group apparently has a pet chicken. I just saw on Slack. I think at least one. She probably has to have one. (laughs) So I think that's really interesting that school district is obviously still incredibly important, especially if you have children. But the impact that school district traditionally has on resale value appears to be something that people are taking slightly less into consideration. And again, well, it'll be interesting to see if that one changes next year in particular. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if there's data on um, just how different school districts work in the area. Like like where we are, we could then apply to the better schools and you could then go to school that's 25 minutes away, despite where you live. And then your kids are grandfathered in. I don't know if that's like that everywhere else, but so it does really no, matter. No, not most places. You, yeah. Most places live. it's either by county or by some other arbitrary. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. Line. Yeah. Yeah, the arbitrary lines are are funny. I had a friend growing up in elementary school whose parents just moved down the road so that they could be in the right school. Uh, there were four elementary schools that like were divvied up by by roads, and literally like you would have a corner, and then <laughs> you could live across the street from someone. They would go to a different elementary school as you, and they ended up moving just to. I see. Yeah, it's nuts. Those lines, and then my last shot, kind of like one I was shocked with, was the increase in the less than $100,000 price point from 2019 to 2020 for the prices new construction buyers reported paying for their homes uh, increased from 9% to 19%. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I don't see many in that price range. And that's a year newer. Like that's, I was like, I'd need to see these homes. Like they must be significantly smaller, um, maybe not permanent, like year round homes. Maybe they're, yeah, and they're there was definitely- with like, there's definitely an increase in the percent of 
buyers who bought urban. So it was up eight basis points mm -hmm. up to 30, uh, 31%, I believe up eight basis points from last year. So that has something to do with it as well. And then you, I mean, you still have a ton of the boomers and going into extending even that into silent generation who are still downsizing and, you know, whatever they can find, uh, yeah. that's kind of their option right now for a lot of them. I've rediscovered an amazing person that everyone should be, should be tracking. Ivy Zellman, someone who actually had a chance to interact with someone. I was at Heartland because we were participating in her data source and she would call me every once in a while to chat, but she's one of the original analysts who called the housing turn that, that ended up hitting us in 2008 and um, just incredibly smart. And she was talking about the the boomers traditionally we've talked about well when they retire when they retire but they just never will freaking retire they just want to keep working forever and that um from what she's saying she really believes that a lot of people decided to retire during the past 12 months because of the conditions and working remotely and having to rely more on technology and that these folks are not coming back to the workforce and finally ready to and, and so this is part of the like interesting Thing about why are there no homes available and and these folks they're purchasing another home but they're not necessarily selling their existing one yet maybe they're going to live in two places at once and boomers have the capital to do that to have a home in the cold north and down south at the same time and same thing a lot of people in manhattan and, and the bay area and i imagine in seattle too they're not yet selling their primary residence even if they've chosen to go live somewhere else i just thought that was super interesting so so funny enough, that was another SNL skit from uh, Saturday where they're talking about boomers having multiple houses. They're like, we got the vaccine mm. first and we have multiple homes. So <laughs> everything comes back to SNL. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, this is going to be probably an unpopular opinion, but how many families that were going to move forward with putting their parents in a home decided not to because of the pandemic? Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's normally a huge surge of inventory that we see is, hey, we're going to sell the home because we need to pay for the nursing facility or we need to pay for assisted care, whatever it may be. That's You're not going to move grandpa into a home during a pandemic when all of the, all yeah, of the media is on those being the hotspots, mm -hmm. right? So... Yeah, I'd love to see the data for next year's trend in terms of multi-generational living and how that increases. I know in Washington specifically, um, our buyers would usually gravitate towards already having those three generational households. So in terms of expanding that nationally, um, very interesting to see what the trends are going to yeah, look like. Sure, it'll be really interesting. Interesting. To I know. <laughs> we haven't listened to last week's podcast yet, but Kevin and I put like the asterisk year, you know, what is 2020's data looking like in the future? And obviously a yeah. lot of things happening now are influencing sales for 2021. It's going to be like the 90s yeah, in baseball. Just... Like, hey, it was it was a COVID year. Throw, throw <laughs> that one out. Uh, don't, don't include it in the average. Yeah, does it? <laughs> one of my interesting takeaways is on page 21 and it talks about um, virtual tours and how that impacted mm, yeah. trust. And I don't want you to be involved in this fight directly, Brett, but I, what I love is that this data to me continues to put, I, I've had a longstanding skepticism with Redfin's data that um, they published in January of, of this year that said that 63% of 2020 home buyers made an offer site unseen. And just as always, I mean, and their data also said that like back in 2015, I think it was 20 or 25%. And I think there's just some goofiness going on with how they're they're tracking this data. So mm -hmm. this is super interesting to me to see that, 
you know, new construction buyers confidence in making an offer after only seeing a 360 degree or virtual tour. Total answer back was 34% very or extremely confident, 46% not very or not at all confident. And of course, then you, you further break it out by buyer profile. First time buyers were overall the, the second most comfortable at 47% right after uh, Gen Zs and millennials, no surprise at 49%. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they actually did. That's where, I mean, saying that you're comfortable, and then we've talked a lot about this, saying saying that you feel more comfortable and then submitting a $20,000 deposit and signing a 26 page, you know, agreement virtually is a different thing. And, and that's anyway, anything else there that you yeah. want to pull out? Yeah, totally. So, you know, millennials and Gen Z are usually the ones that are tied to tech, but 71% of all Nucon buyers agree that 3d tours would give them a better feel for the space. That's up 10 basis points from the previous year. And 60% do want more 3D tours uh, compared to 51% last year. So I understand your trepidation with some of that data, but I, unfortunately for you, am one of those people. So two years ago, we were in the middle of our house search for a place here in West Seattle. I was at, I think, PCBC, um, because it was around Hmm. February or something like that. So... You know, you were doing your karaoke and I was probably with you. you know, <laughs> um, but my my wife was sending me pictures of, of this house and I was like, eh, that doesn't really look, you know, doesn't really look like something that I want. Looks a little old. Uh, looks like it needs some work. And honestly, I don't think the space is, is really right uh, for what we're looking for. She was like, well, I'm going to go see it anyways. She saw it. She fell in love with it. And she was like, hey, like, this is Seattle. We need to move fast on this. I, w- I want to put an offer in. I was like, over my dead body. And in a brilliant display of just complete who wears the pants in the relationship. He <laughs> was like, no, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk this through. Our agent actually kind of overheard what my trepidations were. And she was like, hey, the owner just uploaded a video walkthrough and a 3D tour. Hmm. Take a look at those. If you still feel the same way, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it and go from there. The 3D tour was the thing that sold it for me. So with the static photos, they just decided not to show some rooms in the static photos. There is a whole like play loft that is going to be great. I've got an eight month old now. Um, When she's like two years old, that's going to be the coolest place in the world for her to hang out. Didn't even show it in the pictures. Um, But the 3D tour and the video walkthrough opened up this all this space for me. One thing that I always wanted when I finally had a house that was big enough was one giant eight foot single slab wood table. And when I looked at the static pictures, I was like, no way could it fit in there. Like that, that in and of itself was like, I'm vetoing this house. That's all I want from a, from a house, a nice, like beautiful kitchen table. And with the 3D walkthrough, I was like, oh, there's plenty of space in here. Why did they take the, their pictures so horribly? So Kevin, like I understand. Well, there's, well one, there, there's a new requirement now that in the show notes, or at least in the blog post, Jackie, we need to get a picture of Brett's table because that's, <laughs> that's important. Right. And and I completely agree. I agree with everything you say. You're saying about the comfort level and the information to, to educate and and have a, a better feeling about a home. And again, my fight is not with you guys at all. It's with yeah. those those folks in red uh, over at Redfin. It, it's. I think it's just the question and then the PR blitz that us that went along with it of, you know, I, I actually asked uh, Gary, right? Is that Gary Kelman, the uh, the CEO or Glenn Kelman? Sorry. 
I asked him on Twitter and he responded to me and I was like, can you tell me anything else? He's like, well, that's the question we asked and that's what they said. So to just ask someone, (laughs) did you at any point in your home search process make an offer on a home you haven't seen in person? I think to the end consumer, my hunch now is, this is my latest theory, is that to them that means like, we told our agent we want to buy this one or we want to put in an offer or we clicked a button or submitted a form. I don't think that again means that again, back in 2015, 20% of people were filling out an agreement, giving a check and submitting it as an offer. I just don't even, most people still shockingly are like, oh, DocuSign, DotLoop, those are cool. It's like, where have you been? So I don't know that 20% were doing this all electronically back in 2015 either, but there's no doubt about the content. And I think it's really interesting point too about uh, perceived value and what's important because obviously the, the original set of images left out a lot of things that were important. Hint, hint, builders don't do this either. But when the, once they just said, here, you're in control, Miss and Mr. Consumer, you, you look at what's important to you, then suddenly that house went from a no to Mr. Steele to a, to a big yes. Yep. Yep. It'd be also interesting to see that data um, break, broken down by region, DMA, whatever it may be. And then also an additional question, like say with, with, if it was with a builder, new construction, did they see a home that builder built, but then here's a new one that came along and they just, they need to act fast. So they're judging the, will they like this home because they saw another floor plan two or three months ago. And so they're just like reacting like, yes, we'll buy it now. Here's your money. But the trust is already built because they, they saw the previous home. Mm, that's a good yeah. point too. Well, Redfin ain't talking. And that's why they're not, <laughs> not <talking. laughs> that's why they're not here. And Brett is yeah, uh, right. the other thing kind of along with that was the importance of floor plans, which I think this is also super interesting because of how existing homes have fought back on this front, partially with, with the help of your tool um, to allow this. But that's been like one of the secret weapons of new construction forever is that we were the only ones when we syndicated the, the, I mean, unfortunately some builders only syndicated the floor plan that doesn't work either. Right, Brett. Right. Still have to, <laughs> but that's, that's how it all started, by the way, we're on, we're on Zillow. Oh, you are. No, our floor plans are on Zillow, uh, black and white in, in all their beauty. So now we've got more around it, but that was something that builders had that existing homes didn't. And I think it's interesting, although that's not in this particular report, I think you guys have also done blog posts about, um, the importance that you've seen in terms of how people interact with uh, homes on Zillow that have those floor plans that are existing versus ones that don't. And it really helps buyers understand how all those pictures fit together in an important way. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we're getting really good at selling spec homes. We are pretty much aligned with the resale market, with the technology that we're leveraging and all mm-hmm. that, but we still have work to do on, on the plan side. So 56% agree or some would agree that they've wasted time viewing properties that they would have skipped had they understood the floor plan better. You know, how does that really translate to waste in our industry? How many salespeople had to waste their time just because we weren't more upfront with making the floor plans clear. We didn't have a dynamic, robust floor plan that showed like what everything was actually showing and aligning it with the black and white that you were mentioning. Yeah. Um, So to your point, I mean, the, the plans are great. We love having them. Uh, but they're a good foundation. They're a good starting point. And right now, the vast majority, as you can imagine, because there's no spec inventory, the vast majority of the leads coming through are plans, are on plans. So like, let's, let's bulk them up a little bit. Let's add square footage. Let's add whatever we can to make it more translatable, again, to educate that buyer. What I like on there is, and the key takeaways, it says point out where photos on a listing correspond to a floor plan um, to help buyers visualize the space. 
and just gave me the idea of like if you're playing a game like video game you're in the map you're in the wherever you are in the world you have your map in the corner and it tells you where you are it'd be interesting if someone were to have a easy way you have a yeah. picture of the kitchen essentially where the photographer stood and then you have it like in the corner of the floor plan like in say like an outline that's that, that's dot. their so rendering house board. outhouse but like a real of the real picture Mm-hmm. Yeah, free. you can use the same tool if you have images that are. Yeah, I just maybe haven't seen this in the wild. You know, but, we need to just steal more ideas from video games. I like where you're going. <laughs> That's right. Uh, as the millennials are becoming the largest <laughs> buy group, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, most of those are still a little bit clunky, but even just getting yeah. good descriptions on the photo. Um, but also, Brett, you unlocked like a point of rage for me, which always gets you gets me gets me going. In that, oh no, Craig, you can in, in the process of designing our our home that we were building, I just kept, I kept begging my wife, please stop looking at Pinterest. Please, 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 please. Because there are no floor plans. There's no even other reference of, so you just see this amazing picture of one wall of a room. And she's like, oh my gosh, I want that. Yep. Like, and, and then I would, my favorite game was like Sherlock Holmes. I'd go find that house somewhere else on house or whatever. And I'd be like, that's a one room cabin in New Hampshire. So I'm glad you like that wall, but it doesn't allow for any livability, right? It's just like, so, so the, you can move there. <laughs> it's, it's also just something to think about as you're shooting spaces is you, you can, to your point, Brett, put people off in the wrong path of, well, people love this one photo, but you mm. have to think as a marketer, where are we using that? Do we want to distract everyone by calling the OSC and their first question being, I want that house that's on the homepage that is actually not anywhere near the sweet spot of what you typically sell. Or not, and then that answer might change in different market conditions. But right now, when we are trying to focus on quality versus quantity, because we're overwhelmed, maybe more of your content on your homepage that's in the hero section should be focused on the sweet spot of what you're selling than than not. Yeah, essentially, a way to use content to help you qualify. Similar, but not exactly the same. Love it when we have partners that put their community photos in with like as the home. So they've got this giant great room. That's actually the like community lodge and people oh, are, yeah. people show up <laughs> and expect like, well, where's the great room? It's like, that's not your great room. That's, that's the communal great room. There was six right. couches in there. Like it's <laughs> right. not, it's not in this house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is confusing. But yeah, I mean, from the technology side, the, the worry that's kind of gripped the industry for a while is like technology will take over. We're nowhere close to that. Right. It's pretty clear that the future of home buying will be a hybrid approach. So for example, you know, 59% of buyers want to be able to schedule their showings online and 64% want to unlock a home to view without the salesperson. And those two stats taken by themselves say, oh my God, like technology is coming. But once they've made a decision, like I said, 51% 51% want their agent to handle all of the communication. Right. Yeah. They need that handholding once they're ready to make a decision. So it's not going to completely take over, but we need to adapt to what the expectation is moving forward. Yeah. And also, again, to talk about the simplicity aspect that that happens, but, you know, um, let's see which page is this. On page 28, it talks about coordinating all the parties, the builder, the agent, the inspector, the title, and ensuring tasks happen on time. Mm-hmm. Again, that's that's where I'm just not certain that it's I want an advocate as much as I want concierge level service of just make all this stuff work. Like I, don't I want, want it like Amazon. Like you buy it, you know you're gonna get it. If it doesn't show up on time, there's some type of 
whatever for you if you need it, if it, there's a problem, it's fixed. Wasn't the data last year that buying a house is more stressful than a divorce? Oh, well, I, I can. <laughs> That's terrible. D- divorces <laughs> while you're having a baby, I would say, like at the same time, then, then that might be the top level. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, I guess it's gotta they, be ramped up. If you're also like buying a house is stressful enough, building a house. I I'm, I'm one of the very few people on the new construction team here at Zillow who has not bought new construction at this point, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like seeing all your friends have kids or and you're like, Oh, that's, do I want to get involved with that? Uh, I do eventually uh, just waiting for, you know, an opportunity that presents itself, but you know, it's, it's gotta be even compounded when you're actually building the house. I also think it's interesting. The, uh, the biggest percentage jump I believe on was on the question of determining what price is fair for the home mm-hmm. from 30% in 2019 to 37% in 2020. Uh, you guys did a, a rather, was it a million dollar prize to improve this estimate um, yep. about a year, year and a half ago? Yep. And also, again, in, in the markets where iBuying is allowed, you know, you guys are moving to having that be essentially a standing offer yep. for every home as the goal. So so that that just is, it strikes me as an ironic statement because right now builders are also trying to figure out what is the fair price for <laughs> for a home yeah. in relationship to the cost increases and lot availability challenges that are out there. Um, yeah. I mean, last year, the three main roadblocks were price, timing, and location. Uh, this year it was fair price. And again, this is before the pandemic really hit everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, timing of that old house and the new house, and then just feeling uncertainty or overwhelmed by the process. Yeah. And 33%, I found this one funny, are saying that the final cost was over their their original budget. What, what is that today? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I I was telling Andrew we That's enough. Oh boy. Period. There's steps <laughs> steps up to the, my new office which will be no shared walls with the rest of the house and originally there was supposed to be a door at the bottom of the steps and so at some point you just got to say enough's enough, right? So we were like we don't really care what's behind there. It doesn't need to be crazy cool steps because there's, there's going to be a door that Kevin Oakley will make sure is shut at all times to keep everyone away from him while he's working. Then the the plan had to change. And so the door ended up going to the top of the steps and we we're like, um, what's going on there? Brown or gray painted, you know, just gray painted steps like that you would go to an unfinished basement in a typical house. And we're like, yeah, you're going to see that all the time. Can we can we change that? Sure, no problem. We can change that. You do know that steps are made out of wood, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I know they're made out of wood. So, you know, a typical upgrade expense might have been two or three and it was you know, double, tri- triple that. And and still, you're like, okay, we don't have a choice really. We got to do it. But yeah, if you're not, if you're not going with a builder that, I mean, the, the whole concept right now of an allowance to a to a prospect is a really dirty word. Whereas normally builders can get away with saying, this is your allowance for cabinets. This is your allowance for this, but more and more because customers want to see what that is up front, which is again, a challenge in today's marketplace. See, I, right. picture, I picture the Oakley wing of the house just being, you know, a door at the bottom and a door at the top, a retinal scan, voice That's activated. That's right. If I know. had it to be my way, that you yeah. absolutely. Must be this tall. So that like, okay, now <laughs> right? kids, like we're good. Uh-huh. Trap door to send you straight to the Sarlacc pit in the basement if you try to get in when you're not supposed to. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, That's all funny. the things. So 
You guys had Amy O'Connor from Jeff Shore a couple of weeks ago. Always uh-huh. love hearing from that team. But she mentioned something that stuck out to me is that she said ratings are forever, right? Once they're online, they are forever. One of the stats coming out of our survey was urban buyers are 39% more likely to seek out builders with the highest online ratings. And knowing millennials as, as we do, we know that they are a determined group. You get a rating for everything, your Amazon <laughs> purchase, the restaurant that you're going to. You can't even get into an Uber without seeing what they're rating. So they are a determined group. They will absolutely be looking up your reputation and how you are as a builder online. Give them the path of least resistance. Have ratings upfront. Work with a company that knows kind of the ins and outs of what you're trying to do from a rating standpoint. We partner very closely with Avid Ratings, but if you don't give them the path of least resistance, then they are going to go to Google, they're going to go to Yelp, and God forbid they go to Better Business Bureau, but they will find ratings one way or the other. So try and give them up front. Boy, I'm glad you brought that up because everyone needs to be really, really careful with this because everyone right now is is semi-humble bragging. They're like, to, to other builders. They're like, guess what we did to our customers and they didn't say anything. No, guess what? We raised our prices and no one complained. We told them they wouldn't get the house for two more years and no one complained. We told them they can't have brick on their home even though they selected brick and no one complained. No one's complaining because the builder has all of the power in the relationship right now. But as soon as those people move in, that house better be done. It better be done right. You better have, because if you think your costs are going up right now, your warranty costs and your reviews are going to implode, go supernova. Because as soon as they move in and they realize that you can't kick them out anymore, it will be animals attack. That you've released the caged animal that you poked with a stick for, in this case, even longer than normal, a year and a half. And they're going to hold all that back. And so don't, don't, don't kid yourself and say, well, customers, they'll just do whatever we tell them to right now. They'll take it. Take it, take it, take it. They're going when they move in, protect your ratings and reviews by by surveying in the middle of the process if, ne- if necessary. And also it's it's been an interesting question as everyone's looking to save costs. That seems to be one area that has been hit particularly swiftly was we don't need to do any reviews or ratings anymore. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm nervous. Yeah. I feel there's it'd be interesting if there's data on reviews and ratings by price point. And somehow figuring out, like, is there a certain price range that has the most difficult buyers? Like, is it like I'm just comparing like our, my experience and then other builders and like our builder who built where we live hated all of us here. And we, there, we still have this tension. It's great. It's amazing. But we are a little bit higher price point than they typically build because we're in a higher land cost area. Um, but we were like, we paid this much. We feel justified that we can like be picky on this thing or that thing or this I thing. I think in that scenario, or, or it's one of those things that you don't need the data to know the right answer. It's, it's just like, feel like they are. for, for the first paying. 10 years of my life that people are like, well, I mean, 2003 to, to 2003, what percentage of people even use the internet? And then 2003 to, into now, like what percentage using it? It doesn't matter what percentage use it because yeah. that's why we came up with the better way of saying it is that a hundred percent are influenced, whether they use it or not, everyone is influenced by it. And so just assume that every single buyer cares. Like I guess, I mean, let me clarify. I, my fear, I guess, Andrew, is that people yeah. would use the data to be like, see, I told you these people don't gotcha. care. They'll I guess take I, it. Maybe, it's like, maybe no, I more mean like because of wait lists, because of 
they saw the price increases go from, they went 10, 20, 30, 40. It is the context and framing of how that went down versus like, oh, we just picked a house and it wasn't this fear of missing out. There would be a extra baggage attached to the purchase where the, the buyers late this year, once they start closing and moving in, are going yeah. to be tenfold crazy because they went through this trauma of buying this house and like yeah. the wait list and just like I've already and I've already started to see the the waves start. I think of reviews of people who not necessarily they're having a bad experience because the messaging is poor. They're like, so there was a the specific issue was you know if a house was five hundred thousand dollars the buyer walked away, the builder relisted the house and now it's $600,000. And now the people who are buying the $600,000 are seeing the history and they're like, I, it doesn't make sense. You're a builder trying to screw me over at $100,000. What, why would you do this to me? You're it's, this is illegal. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand that since we've built this, we're actually losing money on this house. There are expect, there are real answers to why this is rising, but the messaging is not being, um, conveyed properly. And so I, I do fear, and I think you brought this up in the past, Kevin, the cost to outshout bad reviews in marketing yeah, just make dollars. up a number and make it a ridiculously high number and tell everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 10 grand but you for also, every bad review, 20 grand. We, we had a, yeah, we had a bad review and we, I met with customer service and we took it out of the marketing, the marketing dollars to, we were like, all right, he's out of warranty, but how many people is he going to influence because he's going yeah. crazy out of his way? So I think just, this is it's just an example where you have to take yourself out of our industry. Can any of what, no, no one listening or here right now can ever imagine this taking place. Jeff Bezos saying, the data says everyone's fine with two-day shipping. Like it's faster than they've ever gotten anything generally before shipped to them. Like we don't care what the data says. We're going to go faster and faster and faster and faster. And that's, that's, that's the, like, again, apologies, Andrew, but you just, you scratch that as like, I don't care what the data tells you. Do we not mm -hmm. understand that humans want things to always be better and standards are always rising and we should, yeah. you know. No, ugh. you're right. You're right. Starting to get you fired up at the end. It's good. This, that's, <laughs> this is good. I, I was tired. I got on. I told him I was. I wasn't feeling the greatest. I was tired. My head hurt. And whether it's the caffeine or the good discussion, I'm. I'm back. I'm ready to. It's ready to, to go. To, Love it. Okay. So, um, Brett, you also uh, was it an internship? What What was it when you were with a certain famous mouse? It was the college uh, program internship uh, for Walt Disney World. Yep. Nice. And, and Disney among, World. among your many world. duties, the most illustrious one was what? Driving the monorail. Now, Man. do you drive a monorail or do you conduct a monorail? That's well, my the hardest question. thing is keeping it on the rail. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, the uh, I mean, amazing. let's let, let let me put it to you this way: they allowed a 21 year old to basically operate 62 tons of machinery, so it's pretty foolproof. And yeah, it was, it was part of a great college program that they have down there through their Disney University or whatever they call it. I basically was able to spend, you know, the hard junior year of college interacting with with guests at Disney World and driving them around around. So That's right. uh, you I don't have know, seen why, why does the monorail always have a smell? I don't know if I'm the only one, but there's a because it was built smell. in like 1965 or something maybe that's what yeah, it is. i mean Asbestos, most, of, I most of the cars are from the early uh at this point probably the early 2000s oh really yeah. wow 
They yeah, smell they like they're from 1965. Still. <laughs> 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 what is, have what you is seen this? the the I'm sure you have the monorail episode of The Simpsons episode oh, season yeah. four episode twelve. That's all I was thinking of. One yeah. of the best one of the best pieces of television of all time. Monorail, but monorail. that's why I ask: Are like are you conducting or are you driving? Like uh, t- uh, seriously, we want to know: Is it just you're pushing no, a button to move buttons? forward yeah. and a button to it go is, backwards, or what? It is a dead man's handle. So dead man's that handle. So if you let go of it, then it will stop. Okay, like a power yeah. a powertrain mo- mower. Pretty much, yeah. And yeah. it's five levels of propulsion, one level of neutral, and two or three levels of braking. So you're actually driving it. Yeah, that's like not like it's automated. It's not an automated thing. By does any it means. help no. you pull up to the correct spot so you're not like? Going no, like oh so the, the fences when, and everything yeah are lining up uh, so Disney World is huge right it's like forty two square miles twenty two thousand acres um, and the monorail goes through a good portion of it and they have pylons and as a monorail driver you have to memorize your stop points for every single route so <laughs> I would memorize you know my stop routes are pylon ninety seven and one hundred five and then one twenty eight and then and you basically say if you get basically a yellow, uh, you've got like green, yellow, just like a stoplight. If you have a yellow, you have to stop at your next pylon. And if you don't stop, then that's, you know, you get a red, you basically get taken out for your next shift. If you get enough of those, you're not allowed to drive anymore. And it's all, it's all safety. Um, cause hmm. they're moving, they're moving hundreds of thousands of people a day on those things. So does the monorail have a horn? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard it. Yeah. They got a, they got a horn. They've got, uh, I used to go over the intercom a lot and, uh, and try and mess with the guests that way. Um, you basically will get written up if you blow the horn through the contemporary. Oh yeah. I'd say so. Through it. Uh, (laughs) we had a couple people who didn't care about thing, blow the horn as they were going through, (laughs) scare a lot of people having brunch with Mickey. Yeah. everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's great. So, so that's, uh, now, now we all know that it, it's not because Brett would had had a history of selling hundreds of millions of dollars of financial instruments between companies. But It'd when he interviewed with Jake, uh, who is a I don't know, well between you is is there a record or like a a, a match going on of who's oh, been to Disney the most? I have easily been to Disney more than Jake. Um, oh, this, those up, are fighting words. Oh yeah, yeah. Jake Sherrick calling yeah. out right now. Uh, <laughs> No, the, um, <laughs> when I was growing up, I went one to two times a year. So I've probably been to Disney, excluding when I worked there, 30 to 40 times. Um, and then obviously working there for six months straight, I was there every day. So I got to wow. be. Wow. <laughs> and Sounds and like not that. just in Disney, I hear. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Jackie. That one's all you. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think I'm the loser here. I've been there once in my entire life. Oh man! And I had to drive from Chicago. It was like a three-day drive. Maybe we sleepy. need an event there. Hey, the good <laughs> news is, uh, come out. yeah, we we just got the go-ahead for for IBS next year, so um, we are there go. excited. I, I miss traveling. I miss talking with our builders. That's the best part of my job is kind of doing the face-to-face and getting to know them and what they're what they're dealing with. And I'm just I'm really excited to get back out there. Yeah, it was it was I incredible. Imagine, it was yeah. it was great getting out um this past week and seeing how happy everyone was in the airport like even parents traveling with small kids who normally someone loses it and either the kid is screaming or the parents screaming yep. everyone was just kind of like chill hanging out helping each other yeah. it was yeah 
My kid's chewing gum out of that chair. I don't care. They found it. On the <laughs> yeah, we're good. We're going yeah, somewhere. Happened, this is great. Seriously, it was, it was so Pollyanna-like. If that had been happening, someone would have been like, random stranger, yeah. here's my pack of gum. Just take it, kid. Like it was just, <laughs> it was kind of strange how happy and nice everyone was out yeah. there. So, honeymoon awesome. period. All right, Brett. Well, thanks for stopping by and sharing again. Make sure you check out the link in the show notes to download your own copy. Um, if you have a contact at Zillow, you can you can ask them for a printed copy as well. They can get those out to you. It's definitely something that you want to reference. And I always loved doing myth busting with people at the company of like, so what do you think about this? Knowing that you have the answer in your back pocket and be like, well, <laughs> this is the answer. All right, no, Brett. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. So for published articles, blog posts, videos, and more, check out doconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and everywhere else we are online. Thanks. Have a good one. See ya. We'll see you next week. Bye.